Amen. All right, we're there in Judges chapter number three. And of course, this morning we are taking a break from our study in the book of Numbers. Normally, we are going through a series through the book of Numbers called Wilderness Wanderings. Uh, but this morning, we're going to be in Judges chapter number 3. I've got to give kind of a lot of uh, explanation and things regarding the sermon uh, that I'd like you to, to understand. Years ago, I preached uh, through the book of Judges, and um, I, I think we were still in the house when I preached through Judges, but I'm not sure Miss Cricket would know, of course, we were in the, in the house, and um, I preached the book of Judges, and of course, that was early in our, in our, in our ministry, and uh, back in those days, we were, I was re- we were recording sermons, but sometimes they didn't get recorded. Sometimes they got lost or whatever. And uh, anyway, I preached a sermon um, out of Judges chapter number 3, specifically of uh, the life of this judge that begins there in verse number 12 uh, by the name of Ehud. And uh, Miss Cricket, and I'm bringing Miss Cricket up because she's part of this. It's her birthday today, so happy birthday to Miss Cricket. Um, but Miss Cricket was there for that sermon, and uh, it became her favorite sermon. Uh, it's a favorite sermon I've ever ever preached. Uh, that she she always brings bringing this up to my wife and I, and uh, and the sermon is nowhere to be found. It just it didn't get recorded. Um, honestly, I don't even have the sermon notes. I'm I don't have any. You know, I preached the sermon. I remember the sermon, uh, but I don't have the sermon notes. I don't have we don't have the recording. We don't have anything. So for years and years, Miss Cricket has been uh, requesting that I re-preach the sermon. Um, from the book of Judges, and I told her years ago, if your birthday ever falls on a Sunday, I will, I will preach that sermon. Well, uh, of course, her birthday eventually fell on a Sunday, and today's the day. Uh, so I'm preaching the sermon at Miss Cricket's request because it's her birthday, and, and the sermon's nowhere to be found, so it might as well be preached again and, uh, and, and, and have it recorded somewhere. Um, let me just say, say this, just so that nobody accuses me of being a respecter of persons, all right? So here's the deal. I'm not taking requests for everybody's sermons <laughs> on their birthday, but here's the deal that I will make to you, because Ms. Cricket's literally been at our church since we were in the house, since we're meeting in the living room, and many of you that are here have been with us since the house. Um, so here's the deal that I'll make with, with the church family. When you've been at our church for a decade, when you've been here for 10 years, if your birthday falls on a Sunday or Wednesday, I'll preach whatever sermon you, you like that I preached in the past, if you like or whatever. I'm not going to preach somebody else's sermon, all right? Don't come up to me and say, it's my birthday. Can you preach my favorite Pastor Anderson sermon? Um, you're like, no. Um, but, but if you've been here for 10 years, just, uh, just, just by show of hands, who, who has been in our church for 10 years or longer, 10 years or longer? Look at that. Tons of people, a lot of people. Praise the Lord for that. And I know some of you have been nine years, eight years. Uh, I was just talking to Brother Joel a couple weeks ago. He's been with us for like eight years, um, the Usher family, and, and many of you have. Uh, so, all right, so that's the deal. Ten-year mark, if your birthday falls on a Sunday or a Wednesday, and, and if you have a favorite sermon that I've preached in the past, I'll preach that. Um, to be honest with you, I don't even, I don't have the sermon notes for this sermon and I don't even remember the sermon, to be honest, just the little bits and pieces that Ms. Cricket reminds me of. Um, so I, I just rewrote a brand new sermon, all right, um, from this passage. I tried to make it as much as what I could remember from 10 years ago, but yeah, I don't, you know, when you preach three times a week for 13 years, it's hard to remember everything you've ever preached. But I do remember certain aspects of the sermon, and I definitely incorporated that. But this is a brand new outline, so I'm not sure if it'll be anything like... Uh, that sermon back then. Sometimes you just have to be there. 
you know. Um, but anyway, we're here in, with all that information, we're here in Judges chapter number three. Of course, in the book of Judges, we've got the, the, the stories of these different judges. And just if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, uh, I, the book of Judges takes place, uh, it is a span of time between the lives of Joshua. So if you remember, Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. Joshua then took them into the promised land. From the time that Joshua died until the first king of Israel, King Saul, uh, the nation of Israel was ruled by a series of judges. And these different judges uh, delivered the people, the children of Israel, out of bondage at different times. And that's what you have in the book of Judges. There's all these different stories in the book of Judges. I think the book of Judges is one of the most interesting books in the whole Bible. Um, we're going to look at one of those stories that's kind of really interesting, um, but there's lots of stories in the book of Judges that are super just interesting, and I mean, if you think the Bible is boring, you should read the book of Judges, because it's a super interesting book. Uh, but in the story, uh, of course, chapter 3 deals with, with several uh, judges, but we're going to focus in today on this uh, story of uh, Ehud, uh, the, the judge of Israel. And I want you to notice the story begins here in verse number 12. And the Bible says this, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. This is a theme throughout the book of Judges. The children of Israel get right with God. They're delivered out of their oppressors. And then they get backslidden. And then they go back into bondage. Then they get right with God. And God sends a judge. And here's what we see in verse 12. The children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. So I want you to notice that we begin with the enemy. We begin with the bad guy in the story. The bad guy is this man by the name of Eglon. Eglon, the king of Moab, and he has come against the children of Israel. And if you're taking notes, and I've always encouraged you to take notes on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some notes. And then maybe you can, I've outlined this passage for you. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that this was not the outline I used 10 years ago. I can tell you that right now. Um, but if you'd like to jot down some notes, I'd like you to notice that we begin with the dictator, the dictator, this man by the name of Eglon. And he has oppressed the children of Israel. And what we see in, in, in the picture of this man, Eglon, the king of Moab, this dictator, what we see is a picture of sin's control. He is a picture of sin and the control that sin has upon people's lives. We see the control of sin. And I want you to notice, first of all, that sin will overpower you. Look at verse 12. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And then the Bible says, And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. And that might seem odd to you, why it is that God would strengthen Eglon, the king of Moab. But I think we talked about this a few weeks ago in a different sermon. And sometimes the worst thing that can happen to an individual is for God to give them what they want. And here, these individuals are wanting to sin against God. They're wanting to go against God. So God says, okay, I'll strengthen Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because, notice what it says, they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And the idea is this, that the longer that you and I participate in sin, the stronger the hold that sin has on our lives. Look at verse 13. And he, this is Eglon, the king of Moab, gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek. Sin not only strengthens in your life, but it spreads in your life. Now we've got different enemies of the children of Israel that have been gathered together, the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel and passed the city of palm trees. So we see 
First, here in verses 12 and 13, that sin will overpower you. But then I want you to notice in verse 13 that sin will overcome you. Verse 13 says, And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel, and possessed the city of palm trees. So we see that this man Eglon, he, he gathers this confederacy of Ammon and, and the Amal- uh, Amalekites, and he goes and he smote Israel, and he possessed the city of palm trees. Now, I want you to make note of that, that phrase there, the city of palm trees, um, because you need to be aware of the fact that Deuteronomy 34.3, you don't have to turn there, but if you'd like to jot this down in your notes, Deuteronomy 34.3 identifies for us the city of palm trees as the city of Jericho. So if you remember the city of Jericho where Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land, the first battle they had was Jericho. If you remember the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. All of those things um, are a reference that city is referred to in Deuteronomy 34.3 as the city of palm trees. And that is the city that's being referred to here. So Eglon takes over the children of Israel. And then the Bible says he possessed the city of palm trees. So he puts his uh, capital, his headquarters in the city of Jericho. Look at verse 14. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, notice these words, 18 years. And again, if you understand the book of Judges, you know that the book of Judges is the children of Israel going through this process of getting backslidden, being put into bondage, repenting, getting right with God, having a deliverer bring them out, then living for the Lord for a while, and then getting backslidden, getting into bondage, and you have this cycle in the book of Judges where you just see this over and over and over again, and it almost seems repetitive, like why would God emphasize this over and over and over again? But when you realize that the life of the average Christian is just that, it's a life of just constantly getting set back, getting backslidden, and God wants to highlight for us that this is not the type of life that you want to live, and the idea of these kings that would come into the children of Israel and oppress them and possess them, these dictators, it is a picture of sin because sin wants to control your life. And if you're not careful, you might wake up one day and realize that you've been under the control of sin for 18 years. For 18 years, these people have been oppressed. They've been overpowered. They had Aglon, king of Moab, bring the children of Ammon and Amalek and they possess the city, verse 14, so the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So we see the control of sin. But I want you to notice, not only do we see highlighted here the control of sin, we also see highlighted for us the cost of sin. Look at verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, and this was a common thing through the book of Judges, they would get in bondage and then they would cry unto the Lord. When they cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer Ehad, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. Now, we're going to come back to these phrases and, and, and develop this here in a minute. But for now, I would want you to notice that the Bible says, And by him, that's Ehad, the judge, the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. So in the story, we have the children of Israel under, under bondage. And then Ehud has been chosen by God. The Lord raised him up to be the deliverer, to be the judge. And the children of Israel are sending a present, there, look at verse 15, unto Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, when you see that word present there, I don't want you to think of a present like a gift necessarily. It, the word present there is being used more as something that they are being forced to present unto 
eglon. This would be like a tax or a tribute. It could be a gift, but it's something that they're not doing because they want to. They're doing this because they're under this man's uh, dictatorship. So they're bringing this present. By him, the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. Look at verse 16. But Ehud made him a dagger, which had two uh, edges of a cubit's length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And again, we'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 17. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. So we see that this present is being brought. We'll come up, but we'll come back to the fat man too, okay? But we see that this present is being brought unto Eglon. Now, I want you to notice it's a sizable present. Verse 18. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. So, uh, uh, Ehud is coming to Eglon with this present, this uh, tribute that has to be presented unto Eglon, king of Moab. And the Bible tells us, that he, in the story, verse 18, after they'd given the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. And again, we'll come back to that in a minute, but I just want you to notice that whatever this present was, it required multiple people to carry it. This was a lot. This was uh, a lot that had to be carried. It, it may have been gold. It may have been silver. It may have been goods. But whatever it was, it required multiple people to carry it. And what we see here is not only the control of sin, that, uh, that Eglon has control and dominion and dominance over the children of Israel, but we see the cost of sin, that it costs them something to be under this control. Somebody said it this way, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you were intending to pay. And we see here in this story the control of sin. These people are being dominated by Eglon. We see the cost of sin. They are having to bring these presence. And the idea is that this would be an annual thing, a tribute that needs to be brought to this man who is, who is controlling them. Now I'd like you to notice, thirdly, we see the characteristics of sin. We see how it is that sin happens and how it is that sin appears in the life of New Testament and Old Testament believers. Because remember, Eglon is a picture of sin. He is a picture of sin's domination upon our lives. He's a picture of sin's control. And something you need to understand, whenever you read the Bible or you study the Bible, you need to understand this in general, but you really need to understand this for this story. I would say out of every story in the Bible, this story is one where this principle uh, needs to be uh, clear in your mind. And it is this, that nothing in the Bible is incidental, accidental, or coincidental. There's nothing that, there's not like a word count that has to be met in these chapters where they're just like, you know, like when you wrote essays in school and you're just adding a bunch of random information just because you have to make it, you know, 500 words or 1,000 words. In the Bible, when something is mentioned, it's mentioned for a reason. There's a reason why these things are being mentioned, why they're being highlighted. And one thing that is highlighted in this story, and this is not maybe politically correct anymore, but it's the Word of God, and the Word of God is pure and perfect. And the Bible says in Judges 3.17, And he brought the present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. And then we're given this detail, and Eglon was a very fat man. And we're told about him being fat. And this, again, is being brought up for a reason because it actually plays into the story. But I want you to notice that we see a characteristic of sin here. And the characteristic is this, 
that we will allow sin to control our lives and we will allow sin to bring a cost upon our lives when we allow ourselves to feed the flesh. All throughout the Bible, we have this concept of the spiritual man versus the old man, or the spiritual man versus the carnal man, the flesh, and and the feeding of the flesh. And this man, Eglon, being a very fat man, the idea is that there was no restraint. He fed himself, and, and he fed his flesh, and he fed his flesh to the point where the Bible, the Word of God, consider this, the Holy Spirit of God is the one narrating the Word of God here. And the Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Godhead, co-eternal, co-equal, co-powerful with every other member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit decided that you and I needed to know that Eglon was a very fat man. Now here's what I would say about that. If the Bible says that he is a fat man, this guy must have been a fat man. I mean, he must have been ginormous. But the idea is that there's the feeding of the flesh. See, the characteristic of sin is that we allow ourselves to feed our flesh, and we feed our flesh. And when the the feeding of the flesh uh, causes us uh, to be unhindered in the feeding of the flesh, then it will control us, and then it will cost us. It'll take you farther than you wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it'll cost you more than you intended to pay. So we see the feeding of the flesh. But I want you to notice that's not the only characteristic of sin that we see in this passage. We see, of course, the feeding of the flesh and this idea that, uh, uh, that, that being uh, uh, overly uh, overweight in your flesh shows that there is a problem in the amount of consumption. And of course, God is highlighting this in the story because it's a visible thing. But uh, it's not just physically. You could be thin and be feeding the flesh and be very fat when it comes to alcohol and drugs and any other sin. So we see the feeding of the flesh. Then I want you to notice, secondly, we see the focus on self. Look at verse 18. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee. So I want you to understand the story. Ehud has a group of people with him. They're bringing a present to Eglon. Eglon is the dictator. He is picturing sin in the story, and we see the control of sin upon the lives of the children of Israel. Then we see that there is a cost for sin. They have to bring this present. They have to bring this tribute. And it's so much, we don't know what it is, but it's so much that it requires multiple people to carry it. After they brought the present, verse 18, when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present, so the guys that were there to help him carry the present, he sends them away, verse 19, but he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, so Ehud then goes back to Eglon, and here's what he says to Eglon. He says, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king. He said, hey, I have something I, I have to tell you. I've got a secret errand for you. And notice the response from Eglon, who said, keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. I want you to notice that the Bible highlights for us that not only was this a man that was feeding his flesh, but this was a man that was focused on self. He hears that there's this secret. First of all, he just got this big tribute. And then Ehud says, I have something else for you, but it's a secret. And Eglon, instead of saying, well, you know, go ahead, bring it, or whatever, he says, keep silence. Like, he doesn't want other people to know what other stuff he's getting. He wants to keep this all for himself. Keep silence, notice, and all the people that stood by him went from him. 
All those people that stood by him would include his guards, would include his entourage, would include the people that would be with him. They all had to go because Ehud wanted this gift, whatever, this additional secret gift. He wanted it for himself. You say, well, I don't know if that really highlights selfishness. Well, look at verse 20. Verse 20 definitely highlights selfishness. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in the summer parlor. Now, a summer parlor is a small room that in the ancient world would be a small room that would be built on the roof of a house. It's called a summer parlor because it'd be a room that you would use during the summertime or during the time when it was hot. It would be built on the roof of the house with open windows to catch the breeze as it comes in. It would have a door that would allow people to come in and out from the outside uh, through which visitors would come. Here the Bible tells us in verse 20 that he had came unto him and he was sitting in a summer parlor. But notice this little phrase, which he had for himself alone. He had the summer parlor, but no one was allowed to go in it. Just him, by himself alone. It's like the only room in the house with air conditioning, and he's like, no one's allowed to go in it except me, this very fat man. So we see that not only was Eglon, who's a picture of sin, not only do we see a picture of feeding the flesh, but we see a picture of focus on self. This man cares about one thing, himself. Let me just say this. This is the characteristic. This is the picture of sin. When you focus on self and when you feed the flesh, when you focus on self and you feed the flesh, you'll find that sin has taken control of your life. You might wake up 18 years later and realize, I'm still under the control of this sin. And you'll realize that it's cost you more than you ever intended to pay. Because sin will take you farther than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you intended to pay. So we see, first of all, the dictator, the control of sin, the cost of sin, the characteristic of sin. But then I'd like you to notice, secondly, this morning, as we look at this passage, the deliverer. We saw the dictator, that's Eglon. Then we see the deliverer. This is Ehud, the judge. And here's what I would say about Ehud, and maybe this is the phrase that you can write down if you'd like, and it's this, that God can use anyone. And it's interesting about Ehud because we see some characteristics regarding Ehud as well. And if you'd like to write these down, I'd encourage you to do it. First, we see that he was peculiar. Look at verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite. And then the Bible says this. Remember, nothing in the Bible is incidental, accidental, or coincidental. Everything that's in the Bible is in the Bible for a reason. We are told these things for a reason. And the Bible tells us that he was a man left-handed. A man left-handed. What can we take from this? What we can learn is that he was a peculiar man. About 10% of the population, of the world's population, is left-handed. The rest are right-handed. Lefties are outnumbered in this world about 9 to 1 by righties. Just by, by show of left hand. Who's left-handed? I'm not left-handed. There's not a lot of left-handed people you see around the room. Who's right-handed? I mean, 90% of... Uh, this seemed like more than 90%. So we see that this was a man who was peculiar. He was a man that was left-handed. And of course, this highlights for us the fact that God wants to use peculiar people. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read this for you. Titus 2.14 says this, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify 
unto himself a peculiar people, zealous and of good works. I want you to notice that we can see uh, regarding this judge Ehud, the deliverer, that he was peculiar. The Bible highlights the fact that he was left-handed, and what we know about left-handed people is that they're peculiar. They're not the majority. They're in the minority, and the Christian life is that way. The Christian life, if you're doing it right and you're living it right, it puts you in the minority. It puts you, because the Bible says, because Jesus said that wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. But the gate that leads to life, it's few, it's straight, it's peculiar. So we see that this man, the deliverer, Ehud, that he was peculiar. He was a left-handed man. And again, you might think, well, what's the big deal about being left-handed and, and why would that be brought up? But I would just say this, it's being brought up for a reason. God is bringing up these things for a reason and he's telling us that he was a left-handed man. So here's what we know about, uh, about Eglon, the dictator. We see the control of sin and the cost of sin and the characteristics of sin. He was a fat man and he was focused on himself. But then we see uh, Ehud, the deliverer. What we can learn about him is this, that he was peculiar. Left-handed, unique, one out of ten. But he was also prepared. Look at verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Girah. And I want you to notice these words again. And again, nothing in the Bible, especially in the story, is incidental, accidental, or coincidental. The Bible tells us that Ehud was a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him, the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, I want you to notice that these things, these characteristics, these, these, these adjectives that are being brought up about this man, he was a Benjamin, a Benjamite and he was left-handed, are not being brought up for no reason. They're being brought up for a reason. And the reason is this, that there's something very interesting about the tribe of Benjamin and being a lefty. Something very interesting in the Bible about being of the tribe of Benjamin and being left-handed. Let's look at it real quickly. Go to Judges chapter 20. It's interesting because the Bible talks about the Benjamites and their left-handed members. Judges 20 verse 15. Let me give you a couple of passages to look at. Judges chapter 20. You're there in Judges 3, so you just flip over to Judges chapter 20, look at verse 15. Notice what the Bible says is a different story, but I just want you to see this. This concept. And the children of Benjamin, right? Benjamin is a tribe of the children of Israel. Ehud, the son of Gera, was a Benjamite. Judges 3.15 tells us that Ehud, the son of Gera, was a Benjamite, a man left-handed. Judges 20.15 says, And the children of Benjamin were numbered at the time out of the cities twenty and six thousand men that drew sword beside the inhabitants of Gibeah, which were numbered seven hundred uh, chosen men. Verse sixteen: Among all the people that were seven hundred, notice these notice these words. Verse sixteen: Among all this people, there were seven hundred. Notice chosen men, left-handed. Every one could sling a stone at an hairbreadth and not miss. The Bible tells us that later on in the book of Judges that the children of Benjamin had 700 chosen men. These were like elite warriors. These were people that were not just in the regular army. They had been chosen for a special division. They were chosen men. They were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hairbreadth and not miss. I mean, these guys would all be drafted to the MLB. They were left-handed pitchers. 
but they were used for war. They were chosen men, left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone. And the Bible highlights the accuracy as to how they could do it at an hairbreadth and not miss. So it's interesting that the Bible tells us that Ehud was a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And then the Bible tells us that the children of Israel had this group of individuals within their tribe of 700 chosen men who were left-handed and everyone could sling a stone. They were great warriors at an hair's breadth and not miss. Let me give you another uh, cross-reference. Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 12. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. You're there in Judges? Go past the book of Ruth, past 1 2 Samuel, 1 2 Kings, into the book of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Look at verse 2. 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 2. 1 Chronicles 12, 2, the Bible says this, they were armed with bows and could use, notice these words, both the right hand and the left, and hurling stones and shooting arrows out of a bow, even of Saul's brethren, notice, of Benjamin. So I'm not sure what's going on with these Benjamites. I'm not sure if they're just really into this thing of being left-handed and and they're training their children to do this um, or if they've got some weird gene in their uh, uh, family that makes them do this. But for some reason, throughout the Bible, it is highlighted that these Benjamites, a lot of them were left-handed and they were very good with their left hand. They were hurling stones and shooting arrows out of a bow, even even of Saul's brethren of Benjamin. Of course, we know that Saul was a Benjamite as well. Go back to Judges chapter 3. So here's what I want you to understand. The Bible is not telling us that Ehud was left-handed for no reason. The Bible is telling us that Ehud was left-handed and that he was a Benjamite because God wants us to understand that the, ben, the left-handed Benjamites were well-trained warriors. And here we have a man that is not only peculiar, but he is prepared. We have often heard the quote, there's a prepared place for a prepared man. And I will say to you that if you are peculiar and you are prepared, you are positioning yourself to be used by God. Because this man was not only peculiar, he was left-handed, but he was also prepared. He was ready to go to war. He was ready to go to battle. He was ready to use that left hand. And that left hand had been trained to be used to be able to fight the battles of the Lord. So we see that Ehud, the deliverer, he was peculiar. And here's what I want you to understand. If you're ever going to be used of God, you're going to have to become peculiar. God wants to use a chosen vessel. He wants to use a clean vessel. God does not want to use a vessel that is like anything else and everything else. The Bible tells us about Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they were ten times better than all the, cho- the, other, uh, the rest of the children of Israel. They were one in ten. Well, Ehud was also one in ten, left-handed. You say, I'd like to be used of God, and I hope that you want to be used of God. I personally would like to be used of God. But something we can learn from the story is this, that if you and I are going to be used of God, we're going to have to be first peculiar. One out of ten. We can't be like everyone else. We can't live like everyone else. We can't do what everyone else does and listen to what everyone else listens to and watch what everyone else listens to. We are required to be a peculiar people. We must be peculiar, but being peculiar is not enough. We must also be prepared ready to go to battle, ready to go to war on behalf of the Lord. I'd like you to notice thirdly regarding this 
deliver. We see that he was peculiar. We see that he was prepared. And then excuse my French, because it will get worse later on in the sermon. We see that he was pissed off. Look at verse 17. Judges 3, 17. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab. And Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. Remember, he comes with this group of people. They're carrying, they're bearing this present, this gift, this tribute that pictures the cost of sin, the control of sin, the domination of sin upon someone's life. And Aegon is a man who is, uh, excuse me, Ehad is a man who is peculiar and prepared. And as he's bringing this present, he's bringing this gift, and he's having to act. We're going to see later on in the story that he must have been comfortable with this king, Aegon. Aegon must have uh, been comfortable with him enough to meet with him privately and uh, he's having to play this game and pretend and act like everything's great and bringing this present. But then the Bible tells us at the end of verse 18 that Ehud sent away the people that bear the present. So once they got done giving the present, he told the guys that were with him, hey, just go on home. We're done here. Look at verse 19. But he, he sends them home. But he himself turned again. So they already brought the present. They presented it to Aglon, king of Moab. They're on their way home, and he tells the guys, hey, you guys go on home. But the Bible tells us that he, but he himself turned again. Now remember, we need to remember this anytime we study the Bible, but especially in this chapter, especially in this story. For some reason, in this story, it is, this principle is more important than any other story, I think, in the Bible. Remember that nothing in the Bible is incidental, accidental, or coincidental. Everything is brought up for a reason. So we're here we have Ehud who's bringing this present. And we could assume that this is not the first time he's done this. They've been in captivity for 18 years. So probably 18 different times has a group of, of Israelites brought a present unto Eglon, king of Moab, representing the cost of sin and the, uh, and the control of sin. And he's bringing this present, and the Bible tells us that this time something was different. This time something was going to happen because he sent away the people that bear the present, verse 19, but he himself turned again. Now remember, everything's there for a reason. He turned again from. You see a word from there? This is not brought up for no reason. This is not brought up incidentally, accidentally, or coincidentally. This is brought up because we, God wants us to understand and highlight this. But he himself turned again from the quarries. The quarries are going to be brought up again later on in this story. But I want you to understand the story and put yourself into it. Ehud brings a group of men, bring a present to Eglon, king of Moab. They deliver the present and they go back home. They're on their way home. As they're going back home, they pass what the Bible says are quarries. And the Bible tells us when they pass the quarries that he, Ehud, sent away the people that bear the present, but he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal. When he got to the quarries, he made a decision. When he got to the quarries, he decided to do something. When he got to the quarries, he said, you guys go on home, and he turned back. He said, what is the significance of the quarries? Well, a quarry is a large deep pit from which stones or other materials are extracted. 
What's interesting, and when I was studying this passage, and I I don't think I made this point 10 years ago, (laughs) but when I was studying this passage recently, I thought, what is so interesting about this word quarries? What's so interesting about these quarries? What, What is the big deal about the quarries? When you look at the underlying Hebrew word that's translated by our King James translators as quarries, and again, that is the correct translation, the King James Bible is perfect. But sometimes we can compare how that same word is translated elsewhere in the Bible to kind of get an idea. Here's what's interesting. The Hebrew word that is translated in Judges 3.19 as quarries, here in Judges 3.19, this is the only time that it's translated quarries in this story uh, in this way. Every other time this Hebrew word comes up in the Bible, it is translated as graven images or carved images. Well, what, what can we take away from that? What the Bible seems to be indicating for us here is that these were quarries. They were places, they were these large, deep pits from which stones or other materials were extracted. But the fact that they're using the Hebrew word, because if you remember, the Hebrew uh, 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 writer is writing to a Hebrew audience. So when they would read this, when the children of Israel would read the story, because remember, there's a story that would be told to the children of Israel. So all these details, imagine being telling the story to a child. Let me tell you the story about Ehud. First, there was this man, Aegon. He was a very fat man. And, 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 and then they talk about these quarries, but the word they're using for quarry is a word that's also used for graven image or carved idol. And they would understand that what is happening or what Aegon, what, excuse me, Ehod is passing by is probably a quarry, a pit that is being dug up and stones are being brought out and materials being brought out and they're building idols with those materials. It's not just that they're bringing stones out and they're just doing whatever. This quarry was specifically being used to bring materials out and stones out to build idols. These quarries would be the stones of Satan. You understand what I'm telling you? They would be stones that would be carved out and turned into graven images, graven idols. And this man, Ehud, is is walking back after bringing the cost of sin to Eglon, the the, the king of Moab. And as he walks by these quarries and he sees this location where work is being done, where stones are being brought out, and maybe there in the same location, the same place, someone is chipping away and turning them into idols. When he passed by this place, something changed. And I want you to look at verse 19, because remember, nothing in the story is incidental, accidental, or coincidental. But he himself turned again from the quarries. We understand what that is now, right? The stones of Satan. But here's what's even more interesting. He himself turned again from the quarries, then look at this, that were by Gilgal. Say, well, why is that being brought up? Well, Gilgal is a very famous place. During the time of Joshua and the conquest of the Canaanite land, Gilgal was the capital of the children of Israel. It's where they would, if you read the book of Joshua, you'll notice that they're constantly going back to Gilgal, back to Gilgal, back to Gilgal. Gilgal was a city near Jericho. Remember the city of palm trees. And this is why this is all taking place in the same general area. Eglon has his capital in Jericho, the city of palm trees. Ehud is bringing the treasure to Eglon, 
And then as he's going back home, he's passing by these quarries by Gilgal. Gilgal is a city near Jericho where Joshua and the children of Israel erected 12 stones as a monument and as a memorial after the crossing of the Jordan River. Are you familiar with that story? The children of Israel with Joshua crossed the Jordan River on dry land. And when they get to the other side, Joshua commanded that 12 men would go back into the dry river, pull out 12 stones, and set a monument there in the midst of the river, 12 stones, and the water flushed back over those stones. But he also commanded them on the land to find 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of the children of Israel, and they erected a monument, and they placed it there. And if you go back and read the book of Joshua, you find that the reason for it, they said, when our children ask, when our children ask, why did you build up this monument? Why did you erect these stones here? They said, these will serve as a memorial, and we will tell them about the great God of Israel that brought us out of the land of Israel, uh, out of Egypt, and brought us through the Red Sea, and brought us through the Jordan River. These stones were set up so that the children of Israel coming after Joshua would see them as a monument and be reminded about the greatness and glory of God. I want you to get the story. Ehud brought a present to Eglon, the king of Moab, representing the control of sin and the cost of sin and the characteristics of sin. And as he's going back home, this is a man that is a peculiar man. He's left-handed. He's a prepared man. He's a warrior ready for battle. And as he's going back home, the Bible tells us he passes by the quarries in Gilgal, where they have the stones of Satan being erected into idols and the stones of God. Erected by Joshua. And something happened. You say, what happened? I'm not sure if the original Hebrew says it this way, but he got pissed off. Look at verse 19. Look at verse 18. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. When he gets... To, Gil, to the quarries of Gilgal. He tells the other guys, you guys go on ahead. You guys go on home. Verse 19. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, keep silence. And all that stood by him, by him went out from him. We see this man, the deliverer, He was peculiar, he was prepared, and he was pissed off. He saw the stones of Satan, he saw the stones of God, and he said, enough is enough. Somebody's got to do something about this. Someone said, there's nothing better than being spirit-filled and mad as hell. I'm here to tell you that if we're going to be used of God, not only are we going to have to be peculiar, and not only are we going to have to be prepared, we're going to have to stop being so stinking apathetic and get upset about some things. Get pissed off about some things. This man got angry as he passed by the quarries, as he saw the place of Gilgal where the stones of God had been erected and the stones of God had been set up as a memorial that the children of Israel, that the future children, Ehud himself, that when he would ask, why have these stones been erected, that they would be a memorial and say, let me tell you about the greatness of God. And when he saw the stones of God alongside with the quarries of Satan, he said, somebody's got to do something. 
I wish some young man would get mad at sin and mad at the world and mad at the flesh and say, I'll be peculiar and I'll be prepared and I'll get pissed off enough to do something and battle uh, on behalf of the Lord. So we see the dictator, the control of sin and the cost of sin and the characteristics of sin. We see the deliverer. He was peculiar and he was prepared and he was, excuse my words, pissed off. If you don't like those words, let me just remind you. The word piss is a Bible word. It's in the Bible. Amen. So every, every word of God is pure. So you take it up with God. But I'd like you to notice thirdly this morning. We saw the dictator. We saw the deliverer. I'd like you to notice the dagger. Look at Judges 3 and verse 16. But Ehud made him a dagger. What's a dagger? It's a little sword. It's a short blade. He made him a dagger which had two edges. The idea is that this dagger was sharp on both sides. Not just sharp on one side or sharp on the other side, but it was sharp on two edges. Now there's a practical reason for this, and and the practical reason for that is this. That, though there are 10% of the population that are left-handed, we live in a right-handed world. Everything is pretty much set up, and I know there's exceptions to this, but pretty much everything is set up, set up for right-handed people. But here, we see this man, Ehud, prepare a dagger which had two edges. It, it, it was sharp on both edges. What does that mean? That means it could be used by a right-handed man and a left-handed man. But Ehud made him a dagger with two edges of a cubit's length. And he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. Remember, nothing in the Bible is incidental, accidental, or coincidental, especially in this story. Now, I want you to see what the Bible is telling us here. The Bible is telling us that he made himself a dagger which had two edges of a cubit's length. This is a left-handed man would hold a dagger with his left hand that's highlighted in this story. And the Bible tells us that he did gird it. The word gird means to fasten it, uh, 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 gird it. Uh, and, and of course, the idea the gird or a girdle would be your belt. So he did fasten it in his belt. He did gird it under his raiment. So this is a concealed carry. He has this weapon, left-handed man, but the Bible tells us that he girded it upon his right thigh. None of this is being brought up for no reason. Why is the Bible telling us that he has a dagger that he puts in his right, that he girds under his raiment? He's got this cloak and dagger on his right thigh. First of all, let me highlight what the dagger is. Keep your place there in Judges chapter 3. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. In the New Testament, if you go backwards from Revelation, you have Revelation. Then you have Jude, 3rd, 2nd, 1st John, 2nd, 1st Peter, James, and the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. The Bible tells us that he had a dagger which had two edges. What does this represent? Hebrews 4.12. Notice what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Do me a favor. When you get to Hebrews, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. The Bible says, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper, don't miss it, than any two-edged sword. 
piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner and thoughts and intents of the heart. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Bible tells us that he had a dagger which had two edges, and then the Bible tells us that the word of God is like a sword. The Bible calls it, in Ephesians chapter 6, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and it tells us that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, using this idea that the Bible itself is a two-edged sword that is sharper. Now, I'm glad that the Bible is a two-edged sword. Anyone can use it, right or left. It's the sword of the Spirit. This man has prepared himself with the sword of the Spirit. Keep your place there in Hebrews 4.12. We're going to come right back to it. Go back to Judges chapter 3. He had a dagger which had two edges. So what does this symbolize? I believe it's, a, it's symbolism of the Word of God. Amen. Now, one of you smart Alex is going to come up to me after the service and say, well, a dagger is a, it's a short blade. It's not a sword, so your illustration doesn't match up. But, but here's the thing. A dagger is a short blade. It, a dagger, a two-edged sword pictures the Word of God, the Bible. Some of you are going to say, it's a dagger, so it's not a... Okay, so he had a New Testament. <laughs> hey, I, I, I go to battle with the New Testament, with the Old Testament, with any, any, any testament. Amen. But he had made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit's length. And I want you to notice that this dagger is highlighted as the Word of God, even in the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharpening a two-edged sword. But look at Judges chapter 3 and verse 20. And he had came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And he had said, I have a message from God unto thee. Now, what did he actually have for Ehud? For, what did Ehud actually have for Eglon? He had a, he had a sword. He had a dagger. He had a two-edged sword, a two-edged dagger. But when he gets to him, he says, I have a message from God unto thee. Why? Because the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We see the dagger in the story is a picture of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We see that this man who was peculiar and he was prepared and he was pissed off and he was tired of sin and tired of the control of sin and tired of the cost of sin and tired of the characteristics of sin. He said, somebody had to do something about this. Somebody should not just stand for this. Somebody should fight. What does he do? He grabs the word of God. I have a message from God unto thee, is what he says. Look at verse 21. So we saw the dictator, we saw the deliverer, we saw the dagger. Here's point number four. We see the dirt. You say, what is that? Look at verse 21. And Ehud put forth his, nothing is incidental, accidental, or coincidental. Put forth his left hand. See, I want you to understand that the Bible is using a left-handed man here on purpose. Why? Because he was not only a peculiar man, but he was a prepared man. He probably had already brought presents to Eglon, king of Moab, because they seemed to know each other. In fact, when Ehud goes back to Eglon, he says, I have a secret message for thee. Eglon says, Shh, don't tell anybody, and makes everybody else go away. So now they're private. It seems like they had some sort of relationship. He was comfortable enough with him to be in private with him. Now, of course, we could assume that Eglon probably had some sort of security detail. I don't think you just got access to the king of Moab and just walked up to him with nobody checking you. But when you understand that he was a prepared man, 
He'd already been ready for this. He already had the position for this. He'd already had a relationship with these people. These guards would have seen Ehud now for maybe the 18th time. They know him. They know who he is. They're probably not going to inspect him that much. He's a well-positioned man. He's a prepared man. But on top of that, he's a peculiar man. He's the kind of man that can put his weapon on the side of his body that they're probably not even going to check. Because he's left-handed, the Bible tells us, he girds the dagger in his right hand. And what I envision is this, that these guards are a bunch of government workers. And Ehud walks up and he says, I got something I got to say to the king. They already know him. They have a relationship with him. And they said, uh, and he goes like this. And they're like, you're good to go. Because most men would have their weapon on their left side being right-handed because nine out of ten people are right-handed. But this man was a peculiar man. He walks up, he says, I got something to say to the king. They're like, they wave him through. He's got his dagger on his right thigh. He's left-handed. Nothing is being told us here, incidentally, accidentally, or coincidentally. And Ehud, the Bible tells us, put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and notice what the Bible says, thrust it into his belly, which we already know from earlier in the passage is a large belly. He takes this dagger and he says, I have a a secret errand for you. I've got something I've got to tell you. I've got another gift for you, but it's secret. And he says, send everybody away. And the guards kind of look at him. He he goes like this. They're like, whatever. They go off into their work. He says, I've got something for you. They come to each other. The Bible tells us that Eglon actually stands up and Ehud put forth his hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. He takes the dagger out of his right thigh and he thrusted it. He stabs it into Eglon, king of Moab, a very fat man's belly. Look at verse 32. And the haft also went in after the blade. The haft there is an older word that means uh, the handle. He thrust it in, because remember, he's sitting in the parlor. Eglon gets up, starts coming down the stairs. He's already a big guy, so momentum's going to be headed in that direction. Ehud takes the dagger from his right thigh with his left hand, thrusts it into the belly, but he thrusts it with such impact, and he's meeting him with such impact, that the Bible tells us that even the handle, even the half, went into the belly. Notice the Bible says, verse 22, and the half also went in after the blade, and the fat close upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly. Some of you should stop watching Hollywood movies and start reading the Bible. This is interesting stuff. (laughs) Now here's what's interesting. What does a dagger represent? The Word of God. What does he do with the Word of God? He thrusts it inside of him. Go back to Hebrews 4. Look at verse 12. You know, you say, Pastor Man is... I notice when I come to church here, you preach a lot of the Bible. You don't tell a lot of stories. You don't give a lot of illustration. You know, a lot of just jokes and things. I've gone to other churches. It's like I've li- I've literally gone to other churches where it's like a stand-up comedy show, where the pastor's just like a stand-up comedian. He's like Jerry Seinfeld up there or something. And then it's just like one verse of preaching, if you're lucky. 
So why, why, why do you guys at Verity Baptist Church, why do you give the Word of God in heavy doses? Here's why. Because the Word of God can do something that I cannot do. I can thrust it into your... No, I'm not going to say fat belly. I can thrust it into your belly. Even the handle. Look at Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Let me tell you something. The Word of God can do something that no other book can do, no other man can do. It can go into you. It can enter into you. And uh, Ehud took this dagger, this two-edged sword that represents the Word of God. He said, I have a message from God for you. And then he thrust it in. The Bible says he thrust it in. And the haft went in. The the, the handle went in. And the fat enclosed. And the, the Word of God went into Eglon, king of Moab. And then what happens? Look at verse 22 again. Judges 3.22. And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly. Notice what the Bible says, and the dirt came out. You say, what is that? That is a very classy way that our King James translators said, uh, here's a synonym for the word dirt, dung. Here's a synonym for the word dirt, excrement. Here's a synonym for the word dirt, feces. Here's a synonym for the word dirt. I'm not going to keep going. You know what it is. <laughs> Poop. <laughs> that's the, the Hebrew, the original Hebrew. That's what it says. Here's a synonym for the word. Look, I've already been using all sorts of colorful language today. So you, you, if you're mad at me, you're already mad at me. So let me just go ahead and use the colorful word. Here, here's another word for the word dirt. Crap. Say, <laughs> so what can we learn from this? Here's what we can learn. When the word goes in, the crap comes out. Amen. Don't miss that in the story. God is highlighting the fact that, look, when the Word of God goes into a man, when the Word of God enters into a man, when the Word of God goes in, because it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing, dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, when the Word of God goes in, the crap comes out. Amen. The dung comes out. The dirt comes out. You say, well, I don't know. That's kind of a crude uh, illustration there. Well, it's a biblical illustration. Philippians 3, you don't have to turn there unless you want to. Philippians 3 and verse 7, Here's what Paul said. He said, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them done, that I may win Christ. Paul said, anything I ever wanted before, anything I ever uh, desired before, anything I ever worked for before, anything that I ever strove for before, he said, whatever it is, whether it was women or wealth or wine or or power or money or accolades or education, he said, I count it all but done. And the Bible tells us in the story of Eglon and Ehud that when the word of God successfully goes in, God can begin to bring the dirt out, bring the dung out, bring the crap out. You say, what is it? It's anything that comes before Jesus Christ. It may be some idol in your heart. It may be some sin that has overtaken your life. But the word of God tells us that when the word goes in, the crap comes out. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Amen. 
And I just want you to understand, you may not like it, but the, the, I think the major application of the story is this, that when the word goes in, the crop comes out. Yeah. And that's why you need to come to church like this. Because yeah. every week I, I take these little daggers and I start aiming them at your bellies. And when the word goes in, the crap comes out. When the word goes in, the garbage comes out. When the word goes in, the, the, the filth of this world and the filth of sin and the control and the cost of sin comes out. So we see the dirt. That when the word goes in, the crap comes out. And I'm not trying to offend you, but some of you are filled with a lot of crap. A lot of worldly crap, a lot of secular crap, a lot of secular garbage that needs to be removed from your inner man. So we saw the dictator. We saw the deliverer. We saw the dagger. We saw the dirt. Let's finish the story quickly. Like you notice, fifthly, we see the discovery. Look at verse 23. And he had went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. So he had, he's in the summer parlor, this room upstairs, and it has these doors to let the breeze in and whatever. Ehud does what he's going to do. He says he's, a, he's a spy. He's a spy for God. He's an assassin. Literally has a cloak and a dagger. He goes and performs a deed, and then the Bible says... And he went forth through the porch. So he goes out the porch and he shut the door of the parlor upon him and locked them. And he was gone out, excuse me, verse 24. When he was gone out, his servants came. And when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked. They said, surely he covered his feet. So the servants come back and they see that the doors are locked. And here's what they say. They assume, they realize that, Ehud must be gone. They don't hear any conversation. Here's what they say. They say, surely he covered his feet. Now, I'm not going to take the time to take you to the passages because I'm already out of time. But let me just say this. If you study that that little phrase, covering your feet, that is a uh, phrase that is used in the Bible uh, to use to explain the process of somebody going to the restroom, going to the toilet. So here's what the guards think. They thought, surely he covered his feet. Now, here's what the Bible doesn't tell us, but we can kind of infer from the story. Because God gives us all these details. He stabs him in the gut, and the dirt, the poop, the crap, comes out. The servants come back, the doors are locked, and they probably smell the dirt. And they think, oh, surely he covered his feet. He must be using the bathroom in his summer chamber, verse 25. And they tarried, so they waited. But then the Bible says, till they were ashamed. <laughs> Word of shame means like, it got to a point of embarrassment, like, how long is he going to be in there for? So they tarried till they were ashamed, and behold, he opened out the doors of the parlor. Therefore, they took a key and opened them, and behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. I want you to notice that Ehud had some help. He had a cover. What was his cover? The smell of the dirt. The smell of the dung. When we talked about the deliverer, I said, here's what we can say about the deliverer, that God can use anyone. When we talk about the discovery, when they discovered 
Eglon being murdered by Ehud, the spy sent by the Lord. When they discovered it, here's what we can learn from that. That not only can God use anyone, God can use anything. The Bible says in Romans 8.28, you don't have to turn there, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. God literally used the smell of the dung coming out of this dead fat man's corpse as a cover for Ehud. And notice his getaway, verse 26, and Ehud escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarries and escaped unto Sarah. Notice he passes by the quarries again. We saw the dictator, the deliverer, the dagger, the dirt, the discovery. Lastly, I'd like you to notice the delivery. Here we see a picture of leadership. Look at verse 27. And it came to pass when he was come that he blew the trumpet. So he had his now back home. Just got done killing Moab, the king of, uh, uh, excuse me, Eglon, the king of Moab. And the Bible says that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down. I want you to just notice these words because there's all these little words used in the next two verses that just scream leadership. The children of Israel went down, notice these words, with him. With who? Ehud. From the mount. And he, Ehud, before them. That's leadership. They went with him. That's leadership. He went before them. That's leadership. Verse 28. And he said unto them, follow after me. That's leadership. For the Lord had delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands, and they went down, notice these words, after him, that's leadership, and took the fords of Jordan toward Moab, and suffered not a man to pass over. What we see in this man, uh, 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 Ehud, is that he is a leader who is attempting great things for God. Let me tell you something. We need leaders who will attempt great things for God. We need men and women who will be peculiar and prepared and pissed off enough to do something. We see this leader who was attempting great things for God. He said, come with me. And he goes before them. And he says, follow after him, after me. And they followed after him. But not only do we need leaders who will attempt great things for God, we need followers who will follow their leaders in doing something great. Look at verse 29. And they, the followers. Don't miss this. They, the followers, these are the same people that have been under bondage for 18 years. Same people who just brought a tribute unto Eglon, king of Moab. They slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men. And I'm going to say it one last time. But remember, nothing in the Bible is incidental, accidental, or coincidental, especially in this story. They slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men. And then it says this, all lusty. What does that word lusty mean? It means full. It means hearty. It means robust. It's a nice way of saying chubby, chunky, bigger, big boned. I just think it's interesting that the leader kills a very fat man and then his followers kill some chubby guys. <laughs> it's like when David kills Goliath and then the children of Israel begin to kill all sorts of giants. Let me tell you something. It's amazing what you might do in your life if you find the right leader to follow. I don't need a church. I don't need a pastor. You need a leader in your life. 
Because we need leaders who will attempt great things for God. And we need followers who will follow the leaders in doing great things for God. And you might be shocked. You may not be the David that fights against Goliath. But once Goliath is down, you might take on another giant. Or you might, be the, you might not be Ehud who takes on this very fat man. But once that fat man's down, you find yourself a lusty guy. Go after him. Notice, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest four score. That's 80 years. I'm over my time, but let me just finish with, just by way of conclusion, let me highlight for you the major takeaways from this story. Because I may not preach this story again unless Miss Cricket has another birthday and she requests it again. Here are the takeaways. Takeaway number one. I've ordered them different, but I think, think, I think they're, they're memorable. Takeaway number one. From Ehud, we learn this, that God can use what's left. You say, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm no one. I don't know that God can use me. Well, we know that God can use what's left. Whatever's left. I don't have a lot of life left in me. Whatever's left, God can use what's left. I don't have a big crowd with me. I don't have a big church with me. I don't have a lot of soldiers with me. We went and uh, did, did uh, a big uh, work yesterday in the building. You say, did everybody, 100% of people show up? I, I don't know how many people showed up. I think we had probably 100, 110 people there. But I can tell you this, even if only five people showed up, God can use what's left. God doesn't need a lot. He just needs whatever's left, whatever we're willing to give him. So you see from Ehud that God can use what's left. Here's what we learned from Eglon, that we need to cut out the fat. The fat needs to be cut out of our lives. When the word goes in, here's takeaway number three, from Ehud and Eglon, when the word goes in, the crap comes out. And it's needed in my life, in your life. God can use what's left. We need to cut out the fat. Eglon needs to go. The cost of sin, the control of sin, the characteristics of sin needs to be cut out. And then takeaway number three, when the word goes in, the crap comes out. Happy birthday, Miss Cricket. Spire has to have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for these great passages in the story, these great stories in the Bible. So much to learn, so much application to make. Lord, I pray you'd help us to learn it. Lord, I pray that there'd be some young people that would rise up from this church and say, I'll be peculiar and I'll be prepared and I'll get pissed off. Help us, Lord, to learn from these passages, use them in our lives. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have uh, Brother Matt come up and lead us in a final song. Just want to give you a couple reminders as we finish up today. First of all, don't forget 